This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Equity Mind! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. Uh, you started the financial year by saying you want to interview all ASX 200 CEOs. I thought that was a big, uh, lofty goal, but I loved it. And uh, it's really exciting that we're starting to chip away at it. Yes, we are. We're slowly getting through it and we have an absolute ripper of an interview today. And you know that there's that sort of workplace mythology around people who started in the mailroom, you know, those that started in the, the low paid positions of a company and really climbed the ranks all the way to the top job. Well, today we are talking to one of these people who successfully climbed the entire corporate ladder. Don May has worked at Domino's for three decades, having started as a delivery driver in 1987 and working his way to become CEO and managing director of Domino's Pizza Enterprises, where he oversaw an ASX listing in 2005, international expansion through the 2010s. And now Domino enjoys a network of over 2,800 stores in 10 countries and is a true Australian success story. Don is one of Australia's great entrepreneurs, and we can't wait to get stuck into this conversation about story to date, the technology developments of the company and his approach to people and culture. So it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Don May. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, Don, we do like to start these interviews by having the CEO describe their company in their own words. So to kick us off today, uh, what is Domino's? Yes, yeah, so Domino's is the world's largest and most loved pizza company that's pioneered the home-delivered food market globally, and it's still what we're best at today. You know, digital delivery is the essence of what drives the underlying growth for our business globally. Domino's itself is the brand, and we're Domino's Pizza Enterprises. So we're just about to open our 3,000 store, which clearly makes us the biggest Domino's group within the world. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty about the actual company, uh, we've got to ask, and I'm sure you've had this thousands of times before, but what is your favorite pizza topping? <laughs> yeah, pepperoni. It's bizarre, but I, I do eat a lot of pizza when I'm traveling, particularly throughout our business. You're always testing all the new products. I just got back from Europe, so I had a lot of pizza. 
and uh, but pepperoni is always my go-to in in the in, with with jalapenos. Oh, nice addition. <laughs> I guess we have to ask the most controversial question when it comes to pizza. Does pineapple belong on a pizza? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's not a supreme without a pineapple, without pineapple on there. And of course, the ham and pineapple is just iconic in Australia. So, Don, uh, if Bryce gave a little bit of your background there, starting as a pizza delivery driver in 1987, working all your way up to leading this massive global business, but would love to hear it in your own words. Can you, can you tell us that story, how, how it started and how you got to where you were? Sure. Like most of our team members, you know, we're, we'll be getting towards 100,000 team members around the world right now. But I started as a pizza delivery driver while I was studying at university, uh, starting to be a high school teacher. And um, I actually delivered pizza for two years, which isn't as common. You know, many of our drivers are maybe with us for 12 months and then they either progress through the business or it is part-time work. So two years is, is by time is, is actually quite long in our business. Um yeah, I got towards the end of my degree. I realized I didn't want to teach. And so I just took a full-time job thinking I was going to start a new degree. Nine months to go. And my kids always uh, remind me that I didn't graduate <laughs> from college or university, um, although I expect them to. And uh, But, yeah, we, we were a little company then called Silvio's Pizza, which was only based in southeast Queensland. We had 15 stores. And so I took a manager's job. I did that and loved it. And my father was a businessman, so just all these memories and the thrill of creating things and turning something that was, wasn't was successful into something successful really motivated me. So I was manager of the year for that little business that year. Then I became a supervisor, an operations manager, and a, sm a small shareholder in Silvio's. And then in 1993, so six years later, we acquired the rights to Domino's, and it had closed down everywhere else in Australia except for Sydney, and we didn't have any stores in Sydney. So... Uh, the founder of Silvio's remained running Silvio's, and I actually went down to Sydney and ran Domino's. And that was the most incredible period of my whole career where I really got to understand the pizza business because here was this this uh, originally a US-bounded business that, like a lot of US companies, was failing all over the world except for in the US. And yet, so, you know, we, we when we competed against Domino's, we always thought that um, it wasn't a great concept, but actually it was a great concept that just hadn't been applied in an Australian way. And having the Australian pizza knowledge added to a great concept. After two years of running two separate brands in 95, we decided, look, it's silly buying all this different media and creating different products. We had to merge and become one brand. And I, I was a smaller shareholder, but I fought really hard. It should be Domino's because I just believed that in those days we had two bigger competitors in Pizza Hut and another company called Pizza Haven. And if we're ever going to be seriously competitive, we needed to map into the global insights of, of Domino's. And so convinced my uh, my fellow shareholders and and between 95 and 96 we converted all the Silvio stores to Domino's and because I fought so hard I also thought that I should lead by example so I went and franchised and I bought my first store in Morrowfield Caboolture which is just north of Brisbane in January 1996 with a dream that over 15 or 20 years I'd have 20 stores which was modeled off another franchisee in the US and um Wow. Overnight, that first store in Morrowfield Caboolture became the second biggest domino store on the planet. Wow. <laughs> for the next three years, we, we would go to the US to a rally and um, I kept getting knocked off by a store in Iceland, <laughs> believe it or not, no way. <laughs> which is which is really interesting. And, and we just kept, I mean, this was a really, really busy pizza store. As I said, it was the second biggest in the world for Domino's and, and you know, Australia had never seen anything like it in, in our company. 
Uh, so then, all of, you know, over the next five years, I grew to 17 stores, you know, went up into Toowoomba and the Sunshine Coast and parts of Brisbane. And, and I was, the 20 store plan was happening really quickly. You know, here's this little business making a couple of million dollars a year selling pizza. And so by 2001, whilst myself and some other franchisees were doing quite well, the company still was quite small. We were 174 stores. Um, there was another company called Eagle Boys, which was 168 stores. So basically our same size. A company called Pizza Haven, which was a copy of Pizza Hut, which was 284 stores. And then Pizza Hut had 427 stores at that time. And um, so I was down in Sydney going to the Sydney Motor Show to finally treat myself. And um, I caught up with the the, the, uh, the chairman and the largest shareholder, who's Mr. Jack Cowan. Um, and still our chairman today and our largest sh- and his family is our largest shareholder. And he said, look, Don, you've had a lot of fun, but it's time to come in. And, and get back into the company, which which took a lot of um, a lot of thought and stress because when you're running your own little franchise, you're your own boss. I had 500 team members, loving life, master of your own destiny. Getting back into a bigger company and driving uh, and leading through others is uh, is a different kind of journey. Um, but you know, there's, there's a competitive nature in in who I am. And so the idea that if we could be market leader in our own communities, why couldn't we be the biggest pizza company in Australia? And so in 2001, another franchisee, Grant Burke, who's still a director and a significant shareholder in our, in our board, uh, he used his eight stores, I used my 17 stores, and we ended up buying 20 and then 25% of Domino's Australia then. that's We were only in Australia. In fact, we hadn't even gone into Melbourne yet. And within two years, we became the market leader. I became the CEO a year later, and it was just extraordinary. You know, Pizza Hut closed about 130 stores. We opened a lot of stores. Our sales went so well, and um, it was a hell of a journey. So we um, we started to expand around Australia. We went into New Zealand. We became the market leader there within a very short period of time as well, which was quite extraordinary. And then being as the company was getting so big so quickly, uh, Grant uh, decided that, you know, he didn't want to be part of the leadership team directly. He'd still like to be involved in the business, so... Rather than we keep buying each other out over time, we decide, well, why don't we list this business? Then we'd have, and, you know, as an entrepreneur, I just have this insatiable appetite for growth and and the enjoyment of building teams and building products and, and building a business. And so, um, so 2005, we listed the business. I think our share price was $2.20. We had a market cap of $120 million. And then we were a little bit concerned in 2005, six that would we eventually grow out of Australia and New Zealand? And we had to make a decision because we were worried that there'd be only so much pizza Australians and New Zealanders would eat, which, by the way, we're very naive to because we're still growing today. But we did this model called One Degree of Separation. That is, should we remain Australian New Zealand and do other brands, which can be quite common, um, other franchise brands, and maybe including creating our own? Or do we are we really good at Domino's and would we like to take on other Domino's markets around the world? And... The Domino's model is is a really really amazing model, and it's it's there's very few like it in the world. Um, you know, we're not the only successful group around the world. There are, you know, there are other quite successful master franchisees, but we're the biggest. Um, so anyway, we we convinced ourselves that the one degree should be that we should be be in, uh, continuing to grow in Domino's, and and so we newly listed 120 million dollar market cap. $2.20 share price, and we acquired the rights to France, the Netherlands, and Belgium in 2006 for 8.7 million euro, roughly 12 million Australian dollars at the time. It's probably worth four or five billion today in our portfolio. Um, but it was it was challenging because you know Australian retailers have got a poor track record traveling overseas, and so we had a lot of shareholders who questioned us, and rightfully so because we could have been naive. And you know we bought a business 
that basically was losing money and it still hadn't paid any royalty to Domino's in the US. And we, we bought France and we're given the Netherlands and Belgium for free, which is the population of Australia and New Zealand. I learned as a young franchisee, whenever there's opportunity to take territory, grab as much as you can. You'll probably never regret it. You know, Mr. to draw farms into the maps around the stores when I was buying them because you never know, there could be houses one day and that's worth money because that's the value in Domino's is your territory. So anyway, long story short, we acquired France, Netherlands and Belgium. The irony of all of it is that the, the Netherlands business was the one that took off first and the Benelux outside of Australia and New Zealand has, has, was historically our second most successful business until recent years. Just incredible. The reason we were given it for free is because a lot of people didn't think the Dutch would eat pizza, was, you know, and that very frugal market. Well, we're not only the biggest pizza company in the Netherlands, we're now bigger than McDonald's by store count, not by sales yet. Um, in fact, we're bigger than McDonald's in Belgium as well um, in store count. And we will beat them in sales in our own belief in years to come. And then we went into Japan nine years ago, September nine years ago. A lot of people said, what are you doing this time? <laughs> you know, the Japanese don't eat pizza. We believe that they would. But at least in the near term, there was enough market share to go after. Today, it's the fastest growth business we own. It's extraordinary what's happening in Japan. And then, um, yeah, we went into uh, Germany uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago. Domino's had never made it in Germany. It's the second fastest growth business we have today. Also extraordinary. I just came out of Germany a few weeks ago. What a business. It's going to be huge. And in more recent years, uh, you know, we've, we've acquired Denmark a couple of years ago, Luxembourg, and we take on Taiwan, our 10th country, in 31st of, of August. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're now budding on 3,000 stores. And it's really interesting, you know, today we're, as we take on Taiwan, we'll be 365 million population. You know, when I grew up in this business, I had two MBs of the world as an Australian. There's not that many Australians and the Aussie peso. You know, it was one minute you'd be parity over my lifetime and next thing you could be down to 48 cents really hard on a global scale when you've got US investors and, you know, and international investors, that, that fluctuation as a business. And and when we what we have today is we have a business of 365 million people. That's a bigger population than the US. And when you add those 10 countries together, it's a bigger GDP than China. So, and it's mostly Euro-Yen denominated, of course, about to take on a Taiwanese currency and uh, we've got Kiwi and Danish krona, but the big nuts and bolts of our business today in growth is euro and yen. So these are really solid, historically global, strong currencies. All currencies fluctuate. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's nice to, to have those. And, um, and the irony as well is that in, in, the, in the last decade, the 60 million Australia, New Zealand and the Benelux was the main driver of our business, created all, the core of our earnings. But in the last couple of years, it's Japan, Germany and France. It's 280 million people. And they're just on a tear. And shareholders, I can't talk about our results and so on because we, we report next week, but our shareholders can track our store count live on our um, website. So as the store opens, it, it goes on there live. And we opened 285 stores in the last financial year, which was a, um, it was a, it was a huge record. And Japan, France and Germany led the charge. So it's exciting days ahead. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story and it's probably one of Australia's best business stories, both you personally and what Domino's has done. And uh, I think people <laughs> just look at it as a pizza store and, and look past the, the incredible story that you're building overseas as well. 
we'd love to sort of unpack some of the lessons that you've learned uh, in the, over the journey and growing growing this business. If we start in Australia, you know, you mentioned there that when you came in to head up Domino's, it was very you, you had big competitors that were bigger than you, but very quickly you took market leadership roles. So, what what were some of the things that you know you employed to to get there? And I guess these days you're you're the big fish in the pond, and you've got competitors nipping at your heels. How do you think about um, competing with new pizza upstarts? Yeah, so we're in the value business, and value at Domino's is you take product, service, and image. You divide it by price equals value. So the better your product, the better your service, the better your image in the eyes of the customer. Then you can be a little even be you can have price control and you can actually be a little bit more expensive and be great value and that that retail model we believe applies to everything and um, so we continue as a business focus on our product our service and image and and that's what we did right back in those early days to what we still do today as we enter a new country we've never arrived as the market leader and. We have, we're not yet in Taiwan, but we're the market leader in every of the other nine countries we've been in and operated so far. And so we, we underlying that we have a business model called high-volume mentality. And high-volume mentality is all about removing all the mental and physical bottlenecks in a business and your sales will go up. I'll give you a really simple example is that when we went into France, the French franchisees would say, we're not even allowed to sell beer or wine. Euro Disney sells beer and wine. And historically, Domino's didn't sell alcohol because we're in the delivery business and the idea of drink driving, would there ever be a risk, control. But that was sort of a, a US-Australian view of the world. That wasn't a European, where Europeans are far more responsible with alcohol. They don't have anywhere near the binging culture that Australia and Britain and America has. And and so the the idea of, uh, of removing a mental bottleneck by letting the franchisee sell beer and wine was an enabler. We didn't think it was going to make the business the most successful piece, but it was a mental barrier. If we can't sell beer and wine, we can't be successful. Okay, well, let's sell beer and wine. By the way, here's a bunch of other things that we think are actually even more important, our delivery times and and so on. So in Australia, you know, that was very much the early journey was that how do we differentiate? We've got the, we've got the attitude of an 18 to 24-year-old. Domino's was born in universities. And, um, and so with that attitude with this high volume mentality and then endlessly focused on product service and image of the brand. These are some of the key things. And obviously there's a lot more than that, but there's some of the key things that drive our business. So then moving overseas, Don, you've mentioned that you've reached into Asia, um, obviously Europe, uh, you know, Germany, Belgium, France, you know, you've mentioned them all. You, You said there that at most instances, your shareholders didn't believe that it could be possible. And there was a lot of uh, pushback. So how do you approach these different markets? Was it was your mentality the whole build it and they will come? You were so you know you were so uh, I guess trusting in the product that you had, or what was your approach to each individual market? And 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 by the way, especially in the early days, we were very nervous because there is no guarantee. And the first thing is that when we travel, we travel as entrepreneurs, not as Australians. You know, our competitors in France are the are the other French pizza players or QSR. Mm in the Netherlands and Belgium. And one of the most offensive things for any company when it travels and it tries to take its brand or business overseas is to continue to refer to the mothership in the name of that country. You know, in America and America or in Australia and Australia, well, guess what? When you look outside, it's France. And if you if you use the national identity of where you come from as your lead, in most cases that's alienating because people go, well, I'm just shutting down because you're very narrow. You're Australian and this is France. 
but with an entrepreneurial model and you just talk to high volume mentality and product service image divided by price equals value is that we speak pizza. We speak, we speak the laws of philosophies around business. And therefore, these are, as they've turned out now, tried and tested business models. Inevitably, people want to compare the countries because there is some competitive spirit. Great. But the primary focus is on the entrepreneurial models. You know, today that's our technology as well and so on. But um, we had that innately because we were used to the Americans coming into Australia and, and actually failing the first three times. And it was a good business. They just were, it's not America. You know, Australians have a is, a, is a socialist country. We don't like to always admit that, but we're a very, very heavily socialized country. By the way, so are nearly all the 10 countries that we operate in. And we have, a, we have minimum wages. We're an island we don't have a third workforce that works for below minimum wages and tips. Um, our taste buds aren't the same. Australians watch a lot of American content, but Americans don't watch any Australian <laughs> content. In fact, Australian content is American content that's for Australia, you know, Crocodile Dundee or, or Australian movie stars that move overseas and become, you know, in, in a sense, American actors. And, and so it's very easy to misjudge us. Well, that's the same as us. If we travel to France, it's easy to have all of these tourist ideas of what is real France or Germany or Japan. And I'll give you another example is that going into France, our philosophy is always fresh is best. So making fresh dough, toppings, fresh and so on. Well, the French believe frozen is better than fresh. That when you when you freeze something at the point of picking a vegetable, by the way, scientifically they're right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's not it's not for me to change Australians' view of the world, because that they're right in their own minds. But it, it, and, and, you know, there's whole chains in France called Picards, which are frozen freezers full of incredible meals. And the French love them. And it's a hugely successful chain because the mentality is fr- frozen is better than fresh. Now, I was having arguments with our CMO when I first arrived. And then I went, hold a second, go back to our philosophy. If the French believe frozen is better, why am I arguing this? And technically it is anyway. Um, <laughs> so th- you've got to be very careful with your philosophies and be very firm on business models and be careful to ha- have those blinkers because you'll get caught out. I mean, when we go into Taiwan, Taiwan's obviously clearly influenced by China and historically by Japan and so on, but it's still Taiwan. And so we still got to look through the lens of, um, of it as a market. Mm. And, um, and that will be, it'll be differences and, and we've got to keep our open eyes. I guess on that, on that point with the international expansion, you know, it, it feels like you've, built a good team or you yourself has have built and developed skills to really understand markets uh in ways that you know the americans coming to australia haven't what what are i guess what are some of the key things you do when you're scoping out a new market so if we take taiwan as an example is it about finding the best people in the local market is it about spending a lot of time there how do you actually understand these markets better than a lot of your competitors have historically so one of the first things we do is we do some pretty extensive research, often in history, some of the most in-depth research probably ever done on the pizza category, but with a number of questions where we're not predicting the outcomes of those questions. We're very open-minded because Domino's isn't the same product all over the world. Our product is very adaptable to whichever country we're in. The way we take the brand could be quite different. For example, in France and the Netherlands, when we first went there, France, food is life. To the Dutch, food is fuel. In, in France, more women eat pizza than men. Well, in the Netherlands, more men eat pizza than women. So really dramatic cultural things. Now, if you're having one Domino's brand 
and you apply in exactly the same way, you're missing a lot of really important relevance to the consumer. So our early days in France was very much a very feminine brand and really enjoying some of the delightful menu development and brand development that really put women at the front centre of, of our thinking, whereas in the Netherlands it was functional food and, you know, it was all of the, the very, you know, service and price and, and stomach fill. Now, the Dutch have moved on. It was really ironic when we were in the Netherlands in, in that first year. The, I read an article where the Australians were being fed in Afghanistan by the Dutch army and food was unacceptable, was inedible. And, uh, and, but, you know, culturally, that's where the, the Netherlands was in those days. As I said, the Netherlands now has, is, is a far more, you know, global and cuisine and so on. But um, So doing really extensive research to find where could you differentiate against who's in the market we also, a lot of companies look at the market size and shape and then run to the rules of the market. We look at it and say, well, what rules haven't been applied yet to this market and could they work? When we went into Japan, the whole pizza delivery business, sorry, the whole pizza business was a delivered business and it was founded in the 80s when rents were so expensive that all the pizza shops were in and Domino's had, had gone there first were in the garages under buildings for no carryout. So they were doing 5% carryout. Well, decades of change, deflation, rents in Tokyo were cheaper than in Brisbane and over years and years of deflation. So, and, and Japan's dominated by um, convenience store operators like 7-Eleven and Family Mart and Lawson's, which are these big multi-thousand store chains. And they would change their model moving from 100 to 120 square metre shops to 300 square metre shops for convenience. And, you know, a couple of thousand of these sites were hitting the streets every year. So perfect domino stores on the high street where we could do carry out. And franchising hadn't been applied heavily in Japan. So there was all these sort of philosophies of what was missing around changing the model, relocating all the stores from the dungeons of Japan to the high street, better looking stores, more approachable, um, you know, franchising the model as well. Today, we're half franchise, half corporate, going and looking at, Pizza was considered an exceptional food because it was only ever marketed at Christmas, New Year, and Golden Week, and that's when it did all its business. You know, it was considered a treat. Well, now we, we, we started chasing the customer in different areas and, and growing consumption. So if you just look at the power of the market, you'd say, well, how big can you be? Well, we look at the market, all the research, and, and then say, well, what's missing that we think we can bring? And cultures also value, especially the Japanese, what authentic things are you bringing? If you want to be successful here, we're Japanese. But we do also value if you're going to bring something to our culture and we're going to reward you for that. And, and it's trial and error and testing and lots of innovation is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of tests to get ones that crack through and then you back them like a, a crazy person to bring them to life. And that's what we've been doing. Well, speaking of innovation, Don, and, uh, and tech, we'd love to dig into all of that. But before we do, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Don, there's no doubt that um, Domino's has, you know, often been spoken about as a tech business that sells pizza. Ren and I witnessed the incredible growth in share price of Domino's while we were at university and completely missed the boat on the whole thing. So we're spewing about that, but um, uh, no doubt that at the time it was tech, tech, tech. And so how do you think about Domino's unique value proposition and what role does tech actually play within your business? And I, I guess is this is the phrase tech business that sells pizza. Is, is that right? Yeah, it's really interesting. That's something the media gave us and have quoted it endlessly, but for the record, for all of your investors, which are hopefully becoming sophisticated investors, we are absolutely a pizza company first. Absolutely. But like any successful retailer in the last 15 years, we've embraced technology. But it was all of that technology was to help us sell pizza. And we're passionate about pizza. We had to build a lot of technology skills as an innovative business. We use technology to help us innovate and bring and enable so many of these product, service, and image tools. And so that's why it's probably confused so many. And, and you know, it's, it's funny how the media works, right? Something that's quoted by a journalist and then someone refers to that article and as if Domino's had said it, and then from then on it's alive. And, look, it's, at the end of the day, it's not the biggest thing, but, but we're genuinely a pizza company first. We're obsessed with pizza. It's in our purpose. You know, we, be, we believe pizza, um, our pizza brings people closer is our purpose. It's all in our values. We live and breathe it all day and we love pizza. Um, and, and that's who we are first. So thanks for asking. <laughs> John, you may, you may be a pizza company first, but you have uh, trialed and tested some pretty cool pieces of tech. Uh, my mind goes to drone delivery in New Zealand and also um, the pizza delivery robot, uh, which was I think was nicknamed Drew as um, a new way to sort of deliver pizza. I mean, there's some pretty cool technology that you wouldn't expect a pizza company to be sort of on the forefront of. So I guess, uh, what have you learned from those trials, autonomous vehicles and uh, drone delivery? And how do you think about the tech, I guess, pipeline for Domino's going forward? Yeah, so a lot of people think that these are gimmicks and that we're just sort of pushing the envelope of, and playing with technologies for fun and gimmickry. But you raised Drew, Domino's robotic units, and that's absolutely not a gimmick. One of the problems that we will face as a business and are facing is that we're in this uh, age of delivery. So the boom in delivery pre-COVID, during COVID, and will be post-COVID, you know, different analysts around the world are predicting that half of all retail by the end of this decade will be delivered. It's just so convenient, you know. And, and the problem is there's not enough human beings on the planet to deliver the number of packages required from all retail. Forget pizza, forget aggregators, but think everything retail, a large proportion being delivered. So when you say it could be half, it doesn't mean it's whole. So there's still going to be, you know, um, omnichannel, um, you know, locations. But the, the sitting in Silicon Valley on one of our tours and understanding where we were going I had one of those Kodak slash blockbuster moments where 
if we can't deliver our product, there's not enough people in years to come, we're out of business. So that's why we started playing with these tools, and we still are today. We've still got um, a robotic trial in Germany. We're about to reignite our, our drone trial in, in New Zealand. Um, the, the business partner there had to build a much bigger drone that could travel further and do a, a bigger payload because our average order is bigger than a lot of people think. But know that these things are, are really important to us because pre-COVID, we'd already hit the wall. So we're in Japan, we're in Europe, we're suffering that we couldn't staff our stores. Now, unfortunately, COVID unleashed a lot of drivers into the market. But as we've see other, as we seen that open up again, Australia, pre this recent lockdowns, we're back to tight delivery market, you know, driver market. The US is having a nightmare. Europe started to return and... And so, therefore, we're going to see wage inflation, and and then that leads us to innovate a lot. If you see our three ten delivery model, where we our ambition is to deliver pizzas in under ten minutes, and in many cases we do, um, that's all about how do we do more deliveries per hour? Because inevitably, we're going to have to pay our drivers more. And if you do four deliveries an hour and you're paying, you know, uh, twenty five dollars, um, well, you can pay more if you can do five deliveries per hour or six deliveries per hour and have the same cost base per order. So we're obsessed with, you know, a faster delivery is efficient, makes us be able to pay more. It's got a huge benefit of convenience uh, to the customer, um, but it also delivers a better product because the quicker we can get from our ovens to your door, it almost becomes restaurant-quality food, and our goal is to do that within a three- or five-minute window, which our competitors don't even come close. And these are the things that we obsess around and technology around that. So if, you, if the technology that was very consumer-facing in the last uh, 15 years you know, our apps um, and all of the cool things we brought to that. Then we became good marketers around that. A lot of the innovation isn't as obvious to shareholders, uh, sorry, to consumers, but they're getting the benefits because they're things like we have a thing called the future order screen, which predicts when you're in the app, it's, we're predicting if you're going to make, you're going to place that order and we start making and baking it to give ourselves a head start. Um, faster ovens, on and on and on. A lot of the technology we're creating is operational technology. It's not as sexy to talk about to customers, but they're getting the benefit because that's why Domino's is delivering a hotter, fresher pizza more consistently. Alec and I have a, a retail background. Both I worked for Woolies and, and Ren was at Coles, and so you know that last mile is always has always been a challenge for that for the delivery space. So it's it's fascinating what the technology is is helping in that area. I remember when we were I was living with a housemate though. You'd be pleased to know, Don. I think uh, from memory, if the delivery was outside that ten minute window, there was some sort of a money back or some sort of guarantee and. As much as we tried to push those drivers to be outside that 10 minutes, never happened. We always got our pizza. So (laughs) they were on. They were on. Yeah. That's good to hear. And that is a student thing to do. Challenge the game. We were pushing. Um, Let's have a chat about the franchise network. So so how do you think about balancing a network of company-owned versus franchise stores? Yeah. So... As I said earlier, we're in the pizza business, and then the way that we're growing that throughout the world is using the model of franchise. And franchisee health and well-being and success is as critical as you know being the best in in the value equation for pizza in our market. And you'll see us report on franchisee profitability in the coming year, and and just uh, the success of our franchisees. The reason we have corporate stores is. We want to be the biggest franchisee in each market in our corporate stores because we want to walk in the shoes of our sub-franchisees. We want to do a lot of our own testing and failing in our own stores rather than 
fail in our franchise stores. It also helps us grow future franchisees. So when we're when we're expanding the markets rapidly in Asia and, and Europe is, you know, yes, we've got our sub-franchisees growing, but we're growing managers. They're our future franchisees. So the more successful corporate stores we have in these high growth phases um, of our business, then they will feed more store openings as well. So most of our corporate store growth will be in Asia and Europe. Australia's at a scale now. We still have about 350 stores to open in Australia and New Zealand, but we already have, you know, enough of a franchise base, and so our corporate store base will be more modest in years to come, circa 40 to 60 stores in Australia and New Zealand, which still puts us as the biggest franchisee, which is the first priority. Mm. The the growth rate you're talking about, Don, is pretty incredible. You know, you say... Oh, it's pretty saturated in Australia, but we still have 350 yeah, stores. <laughs> Bryce and I come from, you know, obviously the stores were bigger, but we're talking about store networks of a thousand that might open, you know, 20 or to 50 a year. So it's, it's pretty incredible the growth that you're still seeing in an already saturated market. I guess, I guess the question is, um, you know, once, once Australia is saturated, once you have, uh, you know, dominant market share in the countries you're in, uh, what what how do you think about growth from there is it just is it more more countries just opening up new markets we are fortunate enough that we do have some pretty big geographies that are a long way from penetration so in our existing geographies we've got at least 10 most likely more than 15 years of growth if you look at japan germany and france particularly the benelux in australia new zealand they'll get there a lot sooner and um fortunately that's only 60 million of the 365 million today so the you know the other 300 million once we had Taiwan is still the line, is still the biggest share of our business, at least 10 to 15 years of growth. But we are still pursuing more countries as well. You know, we have the management. Uh, we have, you know, our one digital platform, which is our technology platform, is globally adapted. And as we turn it on, it's been successful in every country, you know, created in Brisbane and killing it in Japan and Germany and France, you know, places that you would think surely there's someone more sophisticated, but you know, we've, we've done a good job with the team. So, yeah, we think that we can apply our model to more countries. You know, if you said to me in, in, in the next five or to 10 years, I'd be surprised if we got any more than four or five countries in our network because we, just, we still have so much to do with what we've got. You'll also note that as time goes on and we hit new penetration models and new tipping points, we do upgrade the outlooks for countries. So when we bought Japan, it was... 800, then it was 1,000, then 1,500, and who knows in the future. You know, even Australia, when we listed, I think we said it'd be 500-odd stores, and now we believe Australia New Zealand is going to be 1,200 stores. So I think Australia New Zealand will probably be maxing out at around the 1,200 stores, uh, but the other countries, my gosh, we've got a lot of growth to come. So, Don, one of the important parts of uh, understanding a business when it comes to investing, and particularly for retail investors, is to understand management. So... Do you have a leadership philosophy as CEO? Yeah, and it has changed over the years um, as I've matured. Especially in my role today, I see myself as a servant leader and that whilst a key part of my job is living in the next five to ten years. So make sure we're seeing the potholes, the things that can kill us so that we're investing and navigating the, uh, the environment. So that's a big part of my job. But the other part of my job is I don't I don't physically operate any of the business units. We've got a CEO in every country, so my job is to is to support them and equip them and give them the tools and enable them and challenge them. So much more of a servant role 
as much as I may be their boss in many cases, it's not the culture of our business. I mean, these these CEOs are very empowered to run their business units. You know, we have we have global products and like you know the, the things that we do with our technology and our strategy and insight tools and some of the ESG work we're doing. You know, we're aggregating some of the globalness and finance, of course, because we consolidate onto the ASX. But in market, you know, your marketing, your development, your operations, your products, very local, the, the main driving things of any country. And so, yeah, my, I feel like my job as a servant leader to, to, to be there for my team, but at the same time challenge them to be the best they can possibly be and enable that with the tools that we're bringing forward globally to give them and make them the best in their markets. I love I love that comment you made there about your think you're living three to five years in the future. I, I there's a Jeff Bezos quote that said something similar that has always stuck with me, and you know he would say, "Don't congratulate me on my current quarter because I delivered that three years ago." And so you know, fast growing CEOs, you love to see that they're thinking so far ahead. But I guess with that comes the fact that you need to build the right team to deliver the current quarter and live in the moment. How do you think about? You know, building a team uh, across all these different geographies and and building a consistent company culture across um, across the business. Most of our CEOs uh, have been ex franchisees, and that's a key part of our model. Is that we look at any country and business, and we look for the leading sub franchisees, and that can get Groundhog Day after a period of time. You know, your coal room's broken down today. A driver didn't turn up to work. Um, there's been a safety or security issue that you've got to be all over, and after time. It's, you know, it's the same day. And so when we get our best, we challenge them and say, well, why don't you roll some of that into equity in the public company and come and be a leader? And then you're really engaged, you know, at another level. And so we've got a really good pipeline of um, ex-franchisees that are COOs or head of franchise operations, and they're the future CEOs. You know, we'll announce pretty soon one of our team members um, who's going to be the CEO of Taiwan, and he's a 20-year veteran. I'm 34 years. You look at our leadership, you know, 15 is young. And and by the way, they might be 35 years of age because, or, or, you know, Nick Knight started as a wobbleboarder at 15 years of age and runs Australia and New Zealand. You know, he's still only in his 30s. Um, so much depth of experience. So, so we have really good tenure, really good cultural understanding of this business because you've grown up and understand high volume mentality, our value model. You understand the culture of franchising. You were an ex-franchisee. You know how to walk in the shoes and the emotion of a franchisee. Then we, we, we assist these entrepreneurial leaders with technical people that we do bring from outside the company, you know, um, you know, financial people, marketers, highly skilled data scientists and so on that are other, the, that you know, we can feed this entrepreneurial drive in each country. So, but the key, the key is actually that leader, somebody who's embedded in our culture, who really understands and has watched us do this now. So, we do these live calls every week, and the global leadership team are listening to each other's challenges, and sometimes they're irrelevant. Something going on in Japan may be completely irrelevant to France. You know, we're doing ESG and. You know, the Japanese culture's concern for animal welfare is not the same intensity as it is in, say, Europe. And that's just, you know, that's different cultures and we respect that. Or, or you know, what is diversity reflecting your communities as a board and as a, as a and they're different by country, you know, because diversity is very different by, by, uh, by location around the world. The, the CEOs, because they become so well aware and they, their blinkers are opened up, 
that we've got a really strong pipeline. It, it's, it's actually the biggest reasons why we've become the largest Domino's group because we've had the lowest turnover, the longest tenure, in other words, and of highly skilled leaders, and many of them are famous throughout the Domino's world and in their own countries. They're rock stars, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Rockstar's Domino's franchisee, there you go. <laughs> it's It sounds similar to the experiences I had at Woolies. You know, you'd see the store managers who were really great at leading people and then worked their way up the corporate ladders and were there for... 35 years and we're 35 years old. <laughs> very, very similar. Yeah. One of the benefits though for Domino's is you can get to own a piece of the pie on the way. Mm. And that's harder in, in some of the burger chains and the chicken chains that are big capital investments. It's hard for somebody slipping a burger one day to say, I'm definitely going to own that. Whereas we have a thing called the path to excellence and pizza delivery driver a day, two or three years from now, you could actually own your own franchise. 10 years from now, you could own several stores and be a, a very wealthy individual if you choose that journey. And that's one of the journeys, you know, our path to excellence goes all the way from interview, you know, pizza maker, delivery driver, manager, franchisee, or executive. But it's, it is a little, a little bit more unique to Domino's. There's a few other businesses like ourselves, but the fact that you get to be an owner, there's something about being an owner being, versus being a corporate type. Yeah. When you live and die on your P&L, like it's how you feed your family. It's a really interesting psychology that goes through your head. You're probably living that yeah. with this, uh, well, I was just going to say, yeah, we quit our corporate jobs and now we're living and dying on our PL. So <laughs> we understand what so you're Don, talking about. I think we could talk uh, pizza all day, uh, but we want to. We want to first of all say thank you for taking the time and joining us today. Um, I think this was a great interview. We've certainly got a lot out of it. I'm sure a lot of our audience will as well. Um, we do always like to uh, finish these interviews by, I guess, looking to the future. Well. You're already three to five years in the future, so joining you in the future and, and uh, I guess asking yeah. what the future holds for <laughs> Domino's. So if we if we start short term and if you think about what the next 12 months looks like, uh, what, what does that look like for Domino's? Is there anything in the product pipeline that you can talk to us about today? Yeah, so products are more specific to countries and um, so rather than rattle off all 10, there is an underlying current um, in our menu developments that ultimately you come to us for a treat. So our food is indulgent and we and customers always tell us, whatever you do, Domino's, never take our treat away from us. But where possible, how do we make that treat better and better for you um, in the way that we're working with ingredients, with crusts, healthier crusts? And this is the beginning of our, it's part ESG as well in that, you know, the impact that, that dairy has on the planet, you know, the, that cows have on the planet and, and what is the future? What, is, what does that look like in the journey to the future products? So... That's a really, really big focus. You know, on my trip overseas, I'm very fortunate the Australian government let me travel because obviously we're looking at other countries. But I was also meeting with business partners about future products for our whole ESG platform as well. For example, our, our, our dairy partner. And it's so exciting to play in this space of knowing that we could be one of the people that bring the future forward because of our scale. And our customers give us a lot more right to do so because we have a much younger consumer that's attitudinally who we are. So 18 and 24-year-olds, that sort of attitude, much more adaptive to change than someone in their 40s and above. And our core, because that's the core of who we are, it's how we got technology rolled out so much faster than most. Well, food's the same. You know, we think that there's really exciting things coming in the food space. Better for you, better for the planet. Still indulgent. Absolutely everything you love about Domino's. That's first. It's got to be indulgent. But all these other great things are the great positive attributes. 
Yeah, that's that's yeah. great. I mean, I, uh, I at Coles, I was working in food waste and sustainability, and you just the same same thing that you're seeing the scale that these businesses operate on, the ability to affect change. So that's great that you're thinking about it, and we're excited to see what you do in that space. I guess uh, if you think about, you know, businesses are always facing different risks, and I'm sure a business that's operating in ten countries is facing plenty if you think what what would be the biggest risk for dominoes right now yeah when you're a fast growth company you've got to make sure you're you are still keeping an open mind and and looking at a wider net a very focused company a very high growth focused company so engaged every day on the challenges of putting a lot more stores on the ground and executing and developing people and what we've seen in the past and we're always trying to get ahead of that now is you get speed bumps, you you know, and it's self-inflicted. Most of Domino's issues in our history have been self-inflicted, where we've broken away from some of our own rules because we think we're it's a different environment and you know and and a different place. I need to learn that no, those rules still apply, and and so being disciplined but open-minded at the same time to change. It's these ebbs and flows. You know, when is it time that you have to change? And when no, no, hold a second, that's a golden rule. It's been, it's been around for 60 years at Domino's. Um, I just interviewed four of the, the, the four presidents of the history of Domino's, including the founder in the US, and literally in the last few weeks. And, you know, what's the same, but what's different for each of the 10 years, you know? And it's amazing what's the same. But yet it's entrepreneurs, we want to change it all the time, you know? Like, I have it now it's different. And these are the things that get you, is that you, um, you don't realise that there's something you're not taking care of and it bites you and it can bite you really hard. Um, so, you know, for me, looking at the, the, the succession throughout the group, I mean, I, I still plan to, I hope I'm here, um, you know, for many, many years to come. I've no intention of time. I'm only 52 years of age. Um, and I know most of our leadership would want to be here for many years to come. But who are the next generation coming to the next generation, you know? Um, because none of us want to build a business over a 50, 60-year time frame to hand it over and then it collapses. You know, that, that what was your life's work all about? So we're having fun. We're building this great business but how are we also making sure it's going to be here for decades to come? And what is the, how are you seeding the right culture for that loose, tight, open for innovation? For especially who could have predicted COVID? Who, some of the things that we've had to cross out of nowhere. Sometimes it's a, you get two things collide. You know, a government brings a big VAT increase and inflates wages at the same time. Two, of, you know, you get a tax on your sales and a, and you're sitting there going, my gosh, we just took half the P and L out for a store level. How are we innovating against that, you know? And and um, now everybody's in the same game. Your competitors are as well. So it actually is a time when you can take a lot of share because, you know, do you do constructive positive reactions to that? Like in COVID, we positively led through COVID. We invested, we tore up our budget and said we're keeping all franchisees whole. If that means we've got to subsidise them, we... Um, we invested more in marketing and we invested more in, you know, technologies to enable quickly. I'm so proud of the way the team rallied, but it was literally invest, whereas a lot of companies shrunk, you know, cut costs, didn't pay their landlords, did do this, you know. Um, we did take some JobKeeper originally for our print. We have a printing company and it was a way to keep them whole. But once we realised how well the Domino's business was doing, we handed the JobKeeper back, all of it, from, from our, us, and we are one of the first to do so. And we were thankful the government did it because in that very one window when they gave it, it, it stopped us laying off people in our printing business that literally had halved in volume. So it did its job. But then, hold a second, you know, we're really profitable as a company. 
Thank you, Australia, for doing this for us. We really appreciated it. It definitely changed our thinking in the time, but we're so profitable. Why are we keeping it? Here it is. Have it back. So, Don, final question. You know, your your life has uh, has been incredible. Like your your story is an Australian success story, and Domino's is a success story as a business. But as an entrepreneur, you're always thinking about the future and thinking about how can we keep growing and keep having more success. So, if you look uh, and you think ten years into the future, uh, what does success look like for Domino's? That more people shared in our success in this decade that um, you know, shareholders have done very well, our franchisees have done very well, and in many cases our communities have, but we can even do more, that the planet can do a lot better as a result of Domino's existing, um, our, our team members and so on. So we look at all stakeholders and say that this is a future, this next 10 years, really pushing the envelope to say at the size and scale and where we're going, that, that more people get to share in this pie um, than may have even in the last decade. Um, when we think about the business itself, as I mentioned, we'll, there's significantly more delivery. It will be the driver of our business. That delivery will look different, a lot more on the journey from you know to electric. Um, that you know that all of our vehicles get electric, mostly electric bikes. It's the odd scooter and the odd car. Um, then autonomous, autonomous, not exclusively. I don't think by the end of the decade. I think we'll still probably employ more drivers than we do today, but with the total volume, a large proportion of that will be done autonomous. Um, as will some of the roles in the business, but you know we'll employ a lot more people. So it's not like a, it's not about getting rid of jobs. A lot of these are co-piloting, you know, to um, to our business, and our food, you know, will be will be very different to, at the end of this decade to what it is today. Continually the journey up in quality, but the but the health and well-being with that quality, with that indulgence, and its impact on the planet, a light year away from where we are today and knowing the projects that we've already got in the works and, and what we, we, we expect to achieve. So I couldn't be more excited. You know, after 34 years, I sit here and go, we're in the best decade out of those 34 years. Um, it's for us to screw up and inevitably we'll, we'll trip somewhere. It's just the nature of humans and we've got a lot of humans in our business. So we're going we're gonna to make some mistakes. But I, I'm sure that uh, stakeholders that are involved in Domino's will be you know, far happier that we existed and did what we did at the end of this decade than, than the start of the decade. Love to hear it, Don. And I'm sure while the food may be different in 10 years, there'll still be pineapples <laughs> yeah, on pizzas, I'm sure. Really, so, <laughs> it's a very high chance. <laughs> it's been a fascinating conversation. Whilst the growth story has been pretty unbelievable to date, it certainly sounds like there's plenty more to come. So we're very much looking forward to watching this story play out over the next few years, Don. Thank you so much for, for the time and, and sharing your experience and, and the story of Domino's with our community. So um, thank you very much. It's been awesome. It's my honour and thank you. It's been a pleasure. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. 
We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 